Welcome to Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. This is your reader and host, Mark Braun, here. Glad you could join us today. So, uh, I remind you, you're listening to a recording provided for the use of those who are blind and print impaired. Materials or items read on Ayers LA are the copyright property of the original authors and publishers. No one authorized use or duplication is permitted. No siree. Okay, let's get started with, uh, unfortunately, a couple of obituaries. From the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times for Wednesday, June 14, 2023. Phyllis Levine, November 17, 1934 to May 31, 2023. Author unknown. On May 31, 2023, Phyllis Levine passed away gently and peacefully while surrounded by her husband and children, each who loved her unconditionally throughout their lives. She was born Phyllis Wasserman in Los Angeles, attended Marshall High, and then CSUN College, where she received multiple degrees and later also had the pleasure of graduating on the same day as one of her sons. As a young girl, she worked at her family's juice bar business and then as a secretary for an insurance company. It was at age 17 she first met her husband-to-be, Buck. They were married in 1955. They were always in love for all 68 years of their marriage. She was an accomplished person, always striving to polish herself, and at the same time, guiding her family to live successful lives. She didn't want to feel, she didn't want to leave anything out. She was a great party giver, tennis player, traveler, linguist, and friend to many. Her three children, Jeff Levine, Glenn Levine, and Hilary Fisher, with their respected spouses and children, all were extremely close to her and and happily for her, also close to one another. Everyone will miss her always. That was Phyllis Levine, November 17, 1934 to May 31, 2023, author unknown. And this next one is Lee Swartz, December 14, 1927 to June 3, 2023, author unknown. Leatrice Lee Swartz passed away June 3rd at the age of 95. She moved to California with her parents, Theodore and Rosalind Weiss, where she attended Dorsey High and UCLA and met Jean, her husband and best friend, for 64 years. They were partners in everything. She played an integral part in all business and stood by her man through thick and thin. She was a strong, competent, determined, and classy woman. She made things look easy, look easy, even though life was not always a picnic. Lee was a dedicated wife to Jean, loving mother to Steve and Debbie and Chloe, her puppy, an awesome mother-in-law to Tara, uh, Louis, and, and, and Robert, a cool grandmother to Donald and Devin, and a dotting niece uh, for her second mom and Adelaide, who she said made her life very exciting. Lee cared about democracy and loved to shop, read, travel, watch movies, and play cards. She will be loved and missed by all who knew her. In lieu of flowers, please donate to Planned Parenthood or the charity of your choice. A private service will be held at Mount Sinai on June 16. Lee's celebration of life will be held at Palm Court, Culver City on June 17 at 11.30 a.m. That was Lee Swartz, December 14, 1927 to June 3, 2023, author unknown. And those were obituaries from the obituary notices section of the Los Angeles Times, Wednesday, June 14, 2023. All right, we have one Israel story here. This is from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Tuesday, June 13, 2023. Israeli opposition leader testifies. Netanyahu rival says Prime Minister pressed him on legislation that would benefit a Hollywood mogul from the Associated Press. Jerusalem. 
Israel's opposition leader testified Monday that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu tried to persuade him twice to back legislation that would have given a Hollywood mogul and personal pal millions of dollars in tax breaks. But Yair Lapid, a former Prime Minister and major Netanyahu rival, remained unpersuaded, he said. Lapid made the statements as he testified in Jerusalem in one of three corruption cases against Netanyahu. The indictment alleges that Netanyahu abused his position to further the interests of Arnon Milhan, the Israeli founder of Hollywood production company New Regency, in exchange for gifts representing a conflict between the premier's public duties and personal friendships. Netanyahu did personal favors for Milhan, including asking U.S. officials to extend Milhan's green card and renewing Israeli relations that exempted returnees from declaring foreign income, according to the indictment. Lapid testified Monday that Milhan and his attorneys had tried without success to persuade him that extending the tax breaks for a decade would be good for Israel, local media reported. Then, Lapid testified, Netanyahu broached the matter with him twice, once at the prime minister's residence and once outside a cabinet meeting, according to the reports. Lapid said he told Netanyahu the extension wasn't going to happen. He said the prime minister responded by saying it was a good law. Netanyahu, Israel's longest-serving leader, denies claims of wrongdoing, asserting that he was not acting in Milhan's personal interest and occasionally acted against them. He says his exchanges of gifts with Milhan were merely friendly gestures. Milhan is expected to testify in the case in a video call from London, where he resides this month. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz has reported that in 2013, Lapid, then Prime Minister, Finance Minister, sought legal advice on the possibility of promoting legislation that would have benefited Milhan. Reportedly, Lapid said he replied no way to Netanyahu and Milhan about the prospects for the legislation. Netanyahu was charged with fraud, breach of trust, and accepting bribes in three separate scandals involving media moguls and wealthy associates. He denies any wrongdoing. Critics say Netanyahu is on a campaign to weaken the Israeli courts and change the judicial system in order to open an escape route for his trial, claims he dismisses. The corruption charges have been at the center of a protracted political crisis that sent Israelis to the polls five times in less than four years. Each vote essentially a referendum on Netanyahu's fitness to rule. After losing power in 2021 to a coalition of opponents, Netanyahu returned as prime minister late last year despite his legal problems. Under Israeli law, the prime minister has no obligation to step aside while on trial. The trial, which began in May 2020, has featured more than 40 prosecution witnesses, including some of Netanyahu's closest former confidants. Witness accounts have shed light not only on the three cases, but on, a sensation, on sensational details about Netanyahu's character and his family's reputation for living off the largesse of taxpayers and wealthy supporters. That was Israeli Opposition Leader Testifies from the Associated Press out of the World section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, June 13, 2023. All right, now here is another international story from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, June 11, 2023. Counteroffensive underway, Zelensky suggests. Everyone is positive. Pass this on to Putin, Ukrainian leader says at a news conference by Samia Kulov and Jamie Keaton. Kiev, Ukraine. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said Saturday 
that counteroffensive and defensive actions are underway against Russian forces, asserting that its top commanders are in a positive mindset as their troops engage in intense fighting along the front line. The Ukrainian leader at a Kiev news conference along, uh, alongside Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau responded to a question about Russian President Vladimir Putin's comments a day earlier that Ukraine's counteroffensive had started and Ukrainian forces were taking significant losses. Zelensky said that the counteroffensive defensive actions are taking place in Ukraine. I will not speak about which stage or phase they are in. Top Ukrainian authorities have stopped short of announcing that a full-blown counteroffensive was underway, though some Western analysts have said fiercer fighting and reported use of reserve troops suggest it was. I am in touch with our commanders of different directions every day, Zelensky added, citing the names of top uh, five top of five of Ukraine's top military leaders. Everyone is positive. Pass this on to Putin. Trudeau is the first foreign leader to visit Ukraine since a breach in a Dnipro River, river dam spurred thousands of people to flee from devastating floods. He offered up monetary, military, and moral support. He pledged $375 million uh, in new military aid, on top of more than $6 billion that Canada has already provided since the war began in February 2022, and announced $7.5 million for humanitarian assistance for the flood response. Trudeau said the dam's collapse was a direct consequence of Russia's war, but he didn't blame Moscow directly. The Ukrainian military's general staff said Saturday that heavy battles were ongoing, with 34 clashes over the previous day in the country's industrial east. It gave no details, but said Russian forces were defending themselves and launching air and artillery strikes in Ukraine's southern Kyrgyzstan and Zaporizhia regions. Recent Western injections of billions of dollars worth of military equipment, and some of it high-tech and top-of-the-line, to Ukraine have raised expectations about when it would be used and to what effect against dug-in Russia lines. For months, Ukrainian commanders in the eastern city of Bakhmut, which was largely devastated in a months-long fight that has been one of the bloodiest battles of the war have used the language of counteroffensive and defensive operations to describe the activity there. Ukrainian Deputy Defense Minister Hanna Maliar said Friday that the epicenter of the fighting has been in the east, particularly in the Donetsk region, and cited heavy battles in Lyman, Bakhmut, Adivka, and Marinka. Valery Shershim a spokesperson for Ukraine's armed forces and Zaporizhia told Radio Liberty that they were searching for weaknesses in Russia's defense in that region to the west. Ukraine's nuclear energy agency, Energotom, said that the last operating reactor at the Zaporizhia's nuclear power plant had been placed in cold shutdown mode. That's a process in which all control rods are inserted into the reactor core to stop the nuclear fission reaction and generation of heat and pressure. The other five reactors at the nuclear plant, Europe's largest, were in cold shutdown amid concerns about the plant's exposure to the fighting. Energotum said in a statement late Friday that there was no direct threat to the Zaporizhia plant because of the breach of the Kakovka Dam farther down in the Dnipro River, which has reduced water levels in a reservoir used to help cool the facility. Water levels in the Kakovka Reservoir remained stable Saturday, Energotum said. The site's power units, 
have not been operating since September. The head of the International Atomic Energy Agency is due to visit Ukraine in the coming days. Ukrainian authorities reported Saturday that at least six civilians have died across the country as Russian forces launched missiles, Iranian-made Shahed drones and artillery and mortar strikes. Ukraine's state emergency service reported that three people were killed and more than two dozen wounded overnight in an attack targeting the black seaport of Odessa. A spokesperson for Ukraine's Southern Operational Command, Natalia Humenja, uh, said two children and a pregnant woman were among those wounded. Humenyuk. Two people were killed in a Russian attack on the town of Orykiv in the Zaporizhia region, according to Governor Yurli Malashko. In Ukraine's northeast, a 29-year-old man was killed as more than 10 drones targeted the Kharkiv region, its governor, Ole Sinegubov, reported Saturday. He added that at least three other civilians were wounded. The Ukrainian Air Force said that during the night, it had shot down 20 out of 35 Shahed drones and two out of eight missiles of various types launched by Russian forces. The fighting and civilian casualties took renewed attention as authorities in southern Ukraine said water levels have been declining in a vast area beneath the ruptured dam. Nearly one-third of protected natural areas in the Kyrgyzstan region could be obliterated by flooding after the breach of the Kakova Dam, the Ukrainian environment minister warned Saturday. The United Nations humanitarian aid chief, Martin Griffiths, said in an Associated Press interview Friday that an extraordinary 700,000 people were in need of drinking water. On Saturday, German Chancellor Olaf Scholz says he wants to continue speaking with Putin, whose order for Russia's invasion of Ukraine has been criticized by many Western leaders and plans to do so again soon. Scholz has spoken several times by phone with Putin since the invasion. The Chancellor said the basis for a fair peace between Russia and Ukraine is the withdrawal of Russian troops. That needs to be understood, he said. The UK government said it will give $20 million in humanitarian aid to those affected by the flooding. Most of the money is being channeled through uh, international organizations such as the Red Cross and the United Nations. That was counteroffensive underway, Zelensky suggests, by Samia Kulab and Jamie Keaton from the World section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, June 11, 2023. Kulab and Keaton write for the Associated Press. All right, we got a couple of stories here back nationally from the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, June 15, 2023. Synagogue attack survivor testifies about slain mom. The 97-year-old died by her daughter's side during the Pittsburgh mass shooting in 2018. From the Associated Press. Pittsburgh. A survivor of the Pittsburgh Synagogue Massacre said Wednesday that she saw her right arm get blown open in two places by a gunman and cried mommy after a 97-year-old mother was shot and killed by her side in the nation's deadliest attack on Jewish people. Andrea Wedner was the government's last witness as prosecutors wrapped up their case against Robert Bowers, who burst into the Tree of Life Synagogue building with a military-style rifle and other weaponry and opened fire, shooting anyone he could find. Bowers' attorneys did not put on a defense after the prosecution rested, Settling, sending the stage for closing arguments and jury deliberations Thursday. 
Bowers killed 11 worshippers and injured 7 people, including 5 police officers in the 2018 attack. The 50-year-old truck, uh, truck driver is facing 63 criminal counts, including hate, crime, hate crimes resulting in the death and the death and the obstruction of the free exercise of religion, resulting in death. Some of the charges carry a potential death sentence. In a harrowing and heartbreaking account, Wedner told jurors that Shabbat services had started five or ten minutes earlier when she heard a crashing sound in the building's lobby, followed by gunfire. She said her mother, Rose Malinger, asked her, what do we do? Wendner said she had a clear memory of the gunman and his rifle. We were filled with terror. It was indescribable. We thought we were going to die, she said. Wendner called 911 and was on the line when she and her mother were shot. She testified that she checked her mother's pulse and realized, I knew she wouldn't survive. As SWAT officers entered the chapel, Wedner said she kissed her fingers and touched them to her dead mother, crying, Mommy, and stepped over another victor on her way out. She said she, said she was the sole survivor in that section of the synagogue. Her harrowing testimony capped a prosecution case in which other survivors also testified about the terror they felt that day. Police officers recounted how they exchanged gunfire with Bowers and finally neutralized him, and jurors heard about Bowers' toxic online pressure presence, including praise for Adolf Hitler. The defense has acknowledged that Bowers was the gunman, but suggested he acted, out, acted not out of religious hatred, but rather a delusional belief that Jews were enabling genocide by helping immigrants settle in the United States. Also testifying Wednesday was Pittsburgh SWAT officer Timothy Matson, who was critically wounded while responding to the rampage. He told jurors that he and another officer broke down the door to the darkened room where Bowers had holed up and was immediately knocked off his feet by a blast from Bowers' gun. Matson, who stands 6 feet 4 and weighed 310 pounds at the time of the shooting, said he made his way to the stairs and was placed on a stretcher and remembers thinking, I must be in bad shape. Matson was shot seven times, including in the head, and has endured 25 surgeries to repair the damage, but testified he would go through the door again. That was synagogue attack survivor testifies about slain mom from the Associated Press out of the Los Angeles Times for Thursday, June 15, 2023. All right, we have the verdict on that case from the Los Angeles Times Saturday, June 17, 2023. Guilty verdict in synagogue shooting. Robert Bowers could get the death, penalty, death sentence for the October 2018 anti-Semitic attack that killed 11 in Pittsburgh from the Associated Press. Pittsburgh. A truck driver who expressed hatred of Jews was convicted Friday of barging into a Pittsburgh synagogue and shooting everyone he could find, killing 11 congregants and in an act of anti-Semitic terror for which he could be sentenced to die. The guilty verdict was a foregone conclusion after Robert Bowers' lawyers conceded at the trial's outset that he attacked and killed the worshippers October 27, 2018 at the Tree of Life Synagogue in the deadliest attack on Jews in U.S. history. Jurors must now decide whether the 50-year-old shoot should be sent to uh, death row or sentenced to life in prison without parole as the federal trial shifts to a penalty phase that is expected to last several weeks. Bowers was convicted of all 63 criminal counts he faced, including hate crimes resulting in death and obstruction of the free exercise of religion resulting in death. 
His attorneys had offered a guilty plea in return for a life sentence, but prosecutors refused, opting to take the case to trial and pursue the death penalty. Most of the victim's families expressed support for the decision. The jury deliberated for about five hours over two days before reaching a verdict. Bowers turned a, a house of worship into a hunting ground, targeting his victims because of their religion, a prosecutor told jurors Thursday. Reading the names of the 11 people Bowers killed, prosecutor Mary Hahn asked the jury to hold this defendant accountable and hold him accountable for those who cannot testify. Bowers, who was armed with an AR-15 rifle and other weapons, shot and wounded seven people, including five responding police officers. Prosecutors presented evidence of his deep-seated animosity toward Jews and immigrants. Over 11 days of testimony, jurors learned that Bowers had posted, shared, or liked anti-Semitic and white supremacist content on Gab, a social media platform popular with the far right and praised Hitler and the Holocaust. Bowers told police that all these Jews need to die, Hans said. Survivors testified about the terror they felt that day. Among them was a woman who recounted how she was shot in the arm, then realized her 97-year-old mother had been shot and killed right next to her. Andrea Wedner told jurors she touched her mother's lifeless body and cried out mommy before SWAT officers led her to safety. With Bowers' guilt established, survivors and relatives of the deceased victims are expected to tell the jury about the devastating impact of his crimes. The penalty phase is scheduled to start in one week. Bowers' attorneys did not mount a defense at the guilt, of the, of the guilt stage of the trial, signaling that they will focus their efforts on trying to save his life. They plan to introduce evidence that Bowers has schizophrenia, epilepsy, and brain impairments. Defense lawyer Judy Clark had also sought to raise questions of Bowers' motive, suggesting to jurors that his rampage was motivated not by religious hatred, but by his delusional belief that Jews were committing genocide by helping refugees settle in the United States. The three congregations that share the synagogue building, Dor Hadash, New Light, and Tree of Life, have spoken out against anti-Semitic and other forms of bigotry since the attack. The Tree of Life congregation is working on a plan to overhaul the building, which still stands but has been closed since the shootings by creating a complex that would house a sanctuary, museum, memorial, and center for fighting anti-Semitism. The trial took place three years after President Biden said during his 2020 campaign that he would work to end capital punishment at the federal level and in states that still use it. His Attorney General Merrick Garland has temporarily paused executions to review policies and procedures, but federal prosecutors continue to work to uphold already issued death sentences and, in some cases, to pursue the death penalty at trial for crimes that are eligible, as in Bauer's case. There was guilty verdict in synagogue shooting from the Associated Press out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times for Saturday, June 17, 2023. Okay, now we shift over back to California. Here's this one, a couple of articles on our, on our senior senator, Sent Dianne Feinstein. This is from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 11, 2023. Feinstein's back but partisan mistrust still festers in D.C. Democrats uncertain whether GOP would agree to replace frail senator on key panel by Benjamin Oreskes. Washington. 
Along with speculation about Senator Dianne Feinstein's health and ability to serve, the California Democrats' two-month absence from the Capitol this year exposed the deep partisan distrust that permeates the U.S. Senate and threatens to undercut an essential piece of President Biden's agenda. Democrats remain skeptical about assurances from Republicans that, should Feinstein 89 leave office before her term ends in early 2025, that there would be no political gamesmanship when replacing her on the, um, the powerful Senate Judiciary Committee, the narrowly divided panel that votes on Biden's nominations to the federal ju judiciary. Feinstein's return to Washington last month assuaged but did not eradicate those concerns. Given her age, frail health, and evident struggles to keep a busy schedule and maintain all the duties of a senator. One of the unknowns is whether the Republicans would agree to fill her seat. That's the big unknown for me, Senator Richard Blumenthal, Democrat of Connecticut, told The Times. Earlier this spring, when she was still absent, Republicans rejected a Democratic effort to replace Feinstein temporarily on the committee with Senator Benjamin L. Cardin, Democrat of Maryland, with some assert asserting there was no precedent for it, and a senior GOP senator saying that Republicans weren't going to help what we considered to be controversial or unqualified nominees to get confirmed. The lack of confidence in Republicans, particularly if a Supreme Court seat uh, were to open, stems from 2016, when then-Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, Republican of Kentucky, blocked consideration of President Obama's nomination of Merrick Garland to the U.S. Supreme Court to fill a vacancy left by the death of Justice Antonin Scalia. McConnell's maneuver, which swayed the court further to the right, remains seared in the minds of Senate Democrats. He's proved to be relentless in his cunning, Blumenthal said of McConnell. While recovering from a case of shingles, Feinstein missed dozens of votes and, because of the Judiciary Committee's tight voting margins, her absence slowed the process of approving judges even as certain nominees were able to get through with bipartisan support. Recent Times polling found that about 42% of voters wanted her to resign, so Governor Gavin Newsom could appoint a replacement to serve up the rest of her term. Two-thirds said her condition means she's not fit for office. Newsom has promised to appoint a black woman if either of California's, California's U.S. Senate seats opened up. A calculus made more difficult because the field vying to replace Feinstein with their current term ends, when her current term ends includes just one formidable black female candidate, Democratic Representative Barbara Lee of Oakland. If Feinstein were to step down, Newsom's appointee wouldn't automatically be placed on committees, the committees where she served, which would mean the Judiciary Committee would have 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats. In the event of sudden Senate vacancy, a vote to add a senator to committee would be routine. As opposed to the move to temporarily switch, out her, switch her out this spring, some senior Republicans insist there's ample precedent for permanent, permanently replacing her on committees and suggest that such a move wouldn't be controversial. Senate historian Emeritus Donald Ritchie said Feinstein's absence was far from the longest and her, and her infirmities, while still in office, were far from the most severe in the chamber's history. It's a body that through the years has had a number of old and sick members who needed to be accommodated. There was, he said, Virginia Senator Carter Glass, chairman of the powerful Appropriations Committee in the 1940s, who didn't show up to work four years after becoming incapacitated with heart complications.
Then there was California Senator Clara Engel, who had to be wheeled onto the Senate floor in 1964 to break an epic filibuster during debate of the Civil Rights Act. Stricken with a brain tumor, Engel couldn't speak, so instead of I, he pointed to his eye to signify his vote and cemented the landmark legislation's passage. He died six weeks later. Ritchie said members are aware of that history, and in the past, senators have always been very cooperative about their colleagues' health and replacing them if they were unable to serve out a term. This collegiality stemmed in part from the belief among senators that this could happen to me too, he said. McConnell, who was 81, missed about a month of work this year after a fall resulting in a concussion and some broken ribs. But now the judiciary is the Senate's most polarized committee, he said. It's not clear someone else could get on the committee if Feinstein couldn't serve. Partisanship keeps that from happening. It's too bad the institution suffers from that level of political partisanship. Throughout her absence and the first week since she's been back, she was back, Democrats most re- mostly refrained from speculating about Feinstein's future in the Senate. Many said it was up to her to decide if she was fit to serve or not. While reiterating how important it was for her to be in the Capitol to cast crucial votes in the party's favor. Then late last month, former Senator Hillary Clinton opened up a conversation in an interview with Time magazine. Here's the dilemma. The Republicans will not agree to add someone else to the Judiciary Committee if she retires, she said. I don't know in her heart about whether she really would or wouldn't resign, but right now she can't. Because if we're going to get judges confirmed, which is one of the most important continuing obligations that we have, then we cannot afford to have her seat vacant. Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island, who sits next to Feinstein on the Judiciary Committee, followed with the tweet. Hillary gets it. The same rule Republicans used to block replacing Diane on judiciary while she was ill can be used if she fully resigns from committee or from Senate, he wrote. McConnell, who would need to corral the necessary votes for a Feinstein replacement, declined to comment for this article. Longtime Republican strategist Scott Jennings, who is based in McConnell's home state of, of Kentucky, said his former boss is not an anti-institutionalist. He never has been, despite the hyperventilating of the Democrats. There may be a routine vacancy, uh, Jenkins, Jennings said. Therefore, it should be governed by the norms and rules that we would normally operate by. I would just be stunned if somehow the majority party couldn't operate normally. Senator Lindsey Graham, Republican of South Carolina, who serves on the, uh, on the Judiciary Committee, said if Feinstein resigned, he would be in the camp of following the president of the Senate, replacing the person consisting of what we have done in the past. In a recent interview, Graham told the Times he respected the Senate's traditions and wouldn't want to see them undermined in this moment. He said this scenario was far different from Garland's nomination, where Democrats are trying to get somebody confirmed to an, in an election year. In 2020, Judge Amy Coney Barrett was nominated by then-President Trump and confirmed to the Supreme Court days before the presidential election by a Republican majority 52-48. to 48. It was the first time since the mid-1800s that a nominee didn't receive any votes from the opposing party. Two top McConnell allies had views similar to Graham's, but were far less committal than the South Carolina lawmaker. 
The second-ranking Senate Republican John Thune of South Dakota told the Times it was all speculation right now, but acknowledged there is precedent for somebody who steps aside permanently for their replacement to get committee assignments. Another Republican Judiciary Committee member, Senator John Cornyn of Texas, who was close to McConnell, made a similar argument. There would be a negotiation, but I think the biggest objection was trying to do this temporary, Cornyn said. I think if the Senate, uh, if the seat was vacant, that would be very different. Feinstein's return allowed the committee to take up and send on to the full Senate four judges who lacked Republican support. There are currently 74 judicial vacancies and 29 nominations that are either pending in committee or awaiting a full vote in the Senate. In his first two years in office, Biden was able to get more of people lifetime appointments on the federal bench than Trump or President Obama. Still, comments from elected officials such as Graham leave Democrats little comfort. We've all seen Republicans break all sorts of traditions, said Senator Chris Coons, Democrat of Delaware. I believe a decade ago, her request for the consideration of a temporary reassignment of the committee would have easily been granted. That was Feinstein's Back, a Partisan Mistrust Still Festers in D.C. by Benjamin Oreskes from the California section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 11, 2023. All right, here is a follow-up article from the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times for Friday, June 16, 2023. Don't push Feinstein, boxer warns progressives. Republicans will block Biden's judicial picks if the senator quits now, former colleague says, by Mark Z. Barabek. Boxer was once one of the most liberal members of the U.S. Senate, a favorite of progressives who much preferred her over California's other Democratic senator, the more staid and centrist Dianne Feinstein. So it's noteworthy to hear a boxer's advice for those who most fervently wish that Feinstein, who's dealing with well-chronicled maladies, would immediately join her in post-Senate retirement. I think the far left of my party, who's agitating for this, ought to smell the roses, Boxer said, as in, get real. She sees no guarantee that Republicans would allow another Democrat to replace the 89-year-old Feinstein on the Senate Judiciary Committee. In fact, Boxer is convinced they would not. They've already showed their hand, she said, by refusing to let a temporary replacement fill in while Feinstein recuperates from shingles and its severe side effects. I think it speaks volumes to their lack of humanity. Without a tie-breaking Democratic vote on the committee, Republicans could ice President Biden's judicial nominees for the remainder of his term, the very thing Feinstein's critics presumably want to avoid. So it would be best, Boxer suggested, for Feinstein to remain until her intended January 2025 retirement date, staying on hand for critical votes when Democrats, who control the Senate by a bare 5149 majority, need her. Not ideal, but nothing about Feinstein's situation is. In November 1992, Boxer and Feinstein made history by simultaneously winning California's two U.S. Senate seats. They were dubbed Thelma and Louise after the road-tripping cinematic outlaws. It was somewhat sexist, true, but also reflecting, reflected the mild transgressive nature of the women's side-by-side candidacies. Speaking this week via Zoom from her home outside Palm Springs, Boxer produced several keepsakes from that campaign, including a cartoon of the pair as they movie 
as their movie counterparts barreling joyously down the highway in an open-top convertible. Feinstein grabbed me by the hand and never let go. I wouldn't have won without her, Boxer said of that first Senate campaign with her unofficial running mate who had waged a strong 1990 race for governor after serving nearly a decade as San Francisco mayor. She was so popular, and I was like, Barbara who? She laughed. Boxer opted against seeking a fourth term, leaving the Senate in January 2017 at age 76. She recalled Feinstein being somewhat annoyed. She said, why would you do that? You're at the top of your game. Two summers ago, Boxer subtly suggested to Feinstein that perhaps it was time for her to move on from the Senate as well. There'd be another raft of reports about Feinstein's declining physical and mental capacities. Only you can decide this, Boxer said in an interview, then as though addressing her former colleague. But from my perspective, I want you to know I've had very productive years away from the Senate doing good things. So put that into the equation. Boxer said she changed her mind about Feinstein's departure after Senate Republicans blocked allowing a placeholder to fill in for the Senate Judiciary Committee. They forced her back, Boxer said, even as they claimed to love and respect the California Democrat. If a Republican had been incapacitated, Boxer suggested, Feinstein, always a stickler for order, would have led the fight, led the fight for them to recuperate without losing a seat on the committee. I know that, she said. In a recent column, the Washington Post veteran congressional correspondent Paul Kane contrasted the public shaming Feinstein has faced with the adulation surrounding several male senators who suffered physical infirmities as they clung to their Senate seats. Boxer served alongside several of them. But unlike those who see a double standard in the treatment of Feinstein, Boxer doesn't believe sexism is at work. I think it's a function of two things, she said pointing to the narrow balance of power on the Judiciary Committee and Feinstein's Republican colleagues not helping her. And there's something else, Boxer noted, the proliferation of social media and technology that puts a camera and tape recorder in virtually every citizen's pocket. Feinstein's frailty and failings uh, can be minutely cataloged and widely disseminated, and often are, in ways that aging lawmakers were previously spared. But perhaps the biggest difference, Boxer suggested, is a change in the political climate, which in just a few years since she has left the Senate has grown more harshly adversarial and personally brutish. It's tough, she said of Feinstein's unhappy circumstance. It's tough. The two aren't especially close, but they've kept in touch since Boxer departed Washington, talking occasionally and exchanging catch-up emails. This is politics, Boxer went on. No question. No one could be more mindful of that. In fact, Boxer was never one during her 24 years in Washington to shrink from a partisan brawl. But kindness, she said, her voice trailing off, kindness. The Republicans could have spared her all this aggravation. Instead, we're witnessing a sad last chapter in Feinstein's otherwise stellar career. That was Don't Push Feinstein, Boxer Warns Progressives by Mark C. Barabak. From the Perspective section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 16, 2023. Alright, here's one more statewide one. From the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 16, 2023. House rejects GOP effort to censor and fine shift. From the Associated Press. Washington. The House has rejected an effort to censor Representative Adam B. Schiff, turning aside a GOP attempt to fine him 
over his comments about former President Trump and investigations into his ties to Russia. Schiff, Democrat of Burbank, the former chairman of the House Intelligence Committee and the leading lead prosecutor in Trump's first impeachment trial, has long been a top Republican political target. Soon after taking back the majority this year, Republicans blocked him from sitting on the intelligence panel. But Schiff was helped Wednesday by more than 20 Republicans who voted with Democrats to stop the censor resolution or voted present, giving Democrats enough votes to block the measure. The vote was a rare victory for Democrats in the Republican-led House, and they cheered after the vote was finished. I'm flattered they think I'm so effective they have to go after me in this way, Schiff told reporters afterward, referring to his Republican rivals. It's not going to deter me. Florida Representative Anna Paulina Luna, a newly elected Republican who sponsored the measure, passed Schiff in the hallway after the vote and told them she would try again. Luna later tweeted that she would remove a portion of the resolution that suggested a $16 million fine if the House Ethics Committee determined that Schiff lied, made misrepresentations, and abused sensitive information. Some Republicans, including Kentucky Representative Thomas Macy, had argued that the fine was unconstitutional. Next week, we will be filling a motion to censor and investigate Schiff, Luna tweeted. We are removing fine as that seems to be what made these Republicans uneasy. See you next week, Adam. The resolution said that Schiff held positions of power during Trump's presidency and abused this trust by saying there was evidence of collusion between Trump's campaign and Russia. Schiff was one of the most outspoken critics of the former president as both the Justice Department and the Republican-led House launched investigations into Trump's ties to Russia in 2017. By repeatedly telling these falsehoods, Representative Schiff purposely deceived his committee, Congress, and the American people, the resolution said. Special Counsel Robert S. Mueller III, who led the two-year Justice Department investigation, determined that Russia intervened on the campaign's behalf and the Trump's campaign welcomed the help. Mueller's team did not find that the campaign conspired to sway the election and the Justice Department did not recommend any charges. It did not address the issue of collusion directly. The congressional probe, launched by Republicans who were then in the majority, similarly found that Russia intervened in the election, but there, there was no evidence of a conspiracy. Schiff was the top Democrat on the panel at the time. If the House had voted to censor him, Schiff would have stood in front of the chamber while the text of the resolution was read. On Tuesday, Schiff told reporters that censor resolution was red meat that Speaker Kevin McCarthy, Republican of Bakersfield, is throwing to his conference amid squabbles over government spending. Republicans are trying to show their fealty to Trump, Schiff said. Schiff, who was running for the Senate seat to be vacated by Dianne Feinstein, noted that he warned the country during impeachment proceedings three years ago that Trump would go on to do worse. And of course he did worse in the form of a violent attack on the Capitol, he said. In the censor resolution, Luna also cited a report released in May by special counsel John Durham that found that the FBI rushed into its investigation of Trump's campaign and relied too much on raw and unconfirmed intelligence. Durham said investigators repeatedly relied on confirmation bias, ignoring or rationalizing away evidence that undercut their premise of a Trump-Russia conspiracy as they pushed the probe forward. But he did not allege that political bias or partisanship were guided factors for the FBI's actions.
that was House rejects GOP effort to censor and find Schiff from the Associated Press. Out of the Nation section of the Los Angeles Times, Friday, June 16, 2023. All right, on to some entertainment news from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times for Sunday, June 11, 2023. Finding virtuosity in the language of music. How Deborah Levy turned a pandemic coping strategy into her inspired new novel by Michelle Philgate. For the writer Deborah Levy, the piercing wall of ambulance sirens was a pervasive soundtrack of the early pandemic, an unfortunate consequence of living between two hospitals in London. Levy turned to classical music as a counterbalance to all the news she was consuming. The author sought sustenance in the language of music instead of words and she found inspiration for the arc of her new novel, August Blue, a story that took her outside the confines of her flat and across the expanse of Europe and its music. During those various waves of the virus, I was as if I were, I was looking for a narrative for the end of the world, she said, she shared recently over Zoom, speaking with a reading, Levy, a two-time Booker Prize finalist, equally renowned for memoirs, and novels inevitably leads to references to art forms not just consumed, but internalized. It's not surprising when she references J.G. Ballard, who would make himself a small whiskey and soda at nine in the morning to change the climate of him. I love that turn of the phrase, she said, and I felt that the music I was listening to changed the climate inside me. This is how her new novel, which revolves around a block piano virtuoso, came to be set during the end days of the pandemic. The low wages of the nurses and shopkeepers and other employees who contributed to the infrastructure of the country were much on Levy's mind, as well as the fact that it took COVID-19 to make people realize how crucial they were. The patronizing language she heard enraged Levy. I sort of thought, well, the whole world needs a new composition, but coming up with a new language isn't easy as 34-year-old Elsa M. Anderson quickly realized in August Blue. Elsa screws up while playing Rachmaninoff's Piano Concerto No. 2, leading, to her, leading her to walk off the stage in Vienna. The former child prodigy has played it many times before, but she has a composition inside of her that's, that is stalled by her teacher and father, Arthur Goldstein, who adopted her from foster parents when she was six. Elsa's inability to express herself is compounded by performing the work of others by letting the world drown her out. It is so abject to express this loneliness within me, Elsa thinks. I am not sure I can take the freedom to find a language in music to reveal it. I have, after all, learned to conceal it. The old masters are my shield, Beethoven, Bach, Rachmaninoff, Schumann. Their inner lives are valuable without measure. Elsa seeks answers from external sources, such as the innovative dancer Isadora Duncan. Above all else, she believed in what she called freedom of expression. I will show you just how beautiful the human dancing body can be when it is inspired by thoughts. Presumably, she means the thoughts that uh, move her upwards and outwards. Three weeks after Elsa's failed concert, she spots her double for the first time while traveling to Greece to teach a student. The woman purchases mechanical dancing horses, which Elsa immediately wants to claim as her own. Everything that I was had that I was had just had started to unravel. Elsa narrates later on, "I was living precariously in my own body. That is to say, I had not fallen into who I was 
or who I was becoming. What I wanted for myself was a new composition. I had let the woman who bought the horses enter me too. The idea of a twinned self is threaded throughout real estate, the third and final volume of Levy's Living Autobiography series. The author researched doppelgangers as a fellow at the Columbia Institute for Ideas and Imagination of Paris, one of the cities on Elsa's global itinerary. Levy noticed very few examples in literature of female doubles, instead seeing a lot of male doubles were either bent on destruction or possibly hallucinated. Levy, who imparts her intimate who imparts her intimately realistic world with uncanny touches that never ring false. You can't subvert a reality unless you set up a reality, she says, wanted Elsa to accept the woman she encounters as real, even, even if she is slightly per, uh, perturbed by the idea. Elsa's double act acts as a muse, moving her out of the confinement of her own body and helping her find a new language to express herself. There were weeks when I played fragments of my score through the, through the night, which is when I felt most in communion with the woman who had bought the horses, she writes. I projected myself into her, and she became music. The real inspirations for Levy's work, whether fiction or memoir, seem always close at hand. In the background of her Zoom, I spied the antique, hand-painted wooden horses she describes in real estate, when she, where she writes. To be an antique suggests something old and dead, maybe even ghostly. But I was pulled towards these horses because they were so expressly alive. In August Blue, horses are even more resonant. They act on Elsa much like Proust's mandoline. If there is a thorough line, a, thr a thorough line in Levy's work, it is the resonance of objects. Marguerite Duras has said something that I think applies to my writing as well, Levy says which is that the image is not a setting. It has to hold everything uh, the novel is about. So that's how I work with the image. I don't work with symbols, no ideas, but in, the, but in things, they are physical objects. Levy is hardly surprised when readers tell her they find their vo the voice in her novel familiar from her nonfiction. I say, yeah, well, it's, well, it's the same mind. But she describes her fictional characters as avatars to speak through. Ever since her highly acclaimed 2016 novel, Hot Milk, Levy has written exclusively in the first person. I don't really want a narrator who knows so much more than the reader, Levy explains. Often her characters, whether avatars or Levy herself, are peripatetic, restless in both the physical world and their own thoughts. Levy brings up a Joan Didion quote that's in, that's in her reading copy of, Bl of August Blue. I've already lost touch with a couple of people I used to be. That line stuck with her as she worked on the novel. This is a book not about finding an identity, but losing an identity, the unraveling of an identity. It's a striking idea that freedom is to be found not by pursuing the self, but by shedding it. But isn't that what we did as we shed the, the isolation of pandemic shutdowns and exchanged stillness for movement? There are many ways to tell that story. But Elsa's journey is a nuanced and psychologically thrilling composition. That was Finding Virtuosity in the Language of Music by Michelle Philgate from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Sunday, June 11, 2023. Philgate is a writer and the editor of the anthology, What My Mother and I Don't Talk About. 
All right, here's another one from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 12, 2023. He's got the flow on MSNBC. Beat goes on for Ari Melver, Network's rap-loving legal pro amid Trump's indictments by Stephen Battaglio. As the legal heat turns up for under former President Trump, MSNBC's Ari Melbourne is having a moment. The parade of legal experts who appear daily with the beat with Ari Melbourne include the 2024 Republican presidential candidates' attorneys who get ample time to make their case. That has produced memorable encounters, such as a recent appearance by Joe Tacopina, who represents Trump in the Manhattan District Attorney's investigation into hush money payments to adult film star Stormy Daniels. During the feisty 21-minute March exchange, Melbourne held up a page of a 2018 transcript in which Trump told reporters that he had no knowledge of the $130,000 paid to Daniels to cover up an alleged affair. A flustered Tacopino reached across the glass table trying to snatch the paper away. Despite the tense moment spiced up by Melbourne's touch of courtroom theatrics, Tacopino told the host he was fair not often the kicker for a Trump-related segment on cable news. The unprecedented story of a former president indicted twice and the subject of two other criminal investigations has kept Melbourne, a lawyer who joined MSNBC as an analyst in 2013, in demand and lifted the daily program's ratings. He is also the only news anchor who will drop a few lines of, from Slippin' by the late rapper DMX to describe the early stumbles of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis' presidential campaign. MSNBC has capitalized on the discord at CNN, which has sent viewers its way by trying to accommodate more GOP voices. In May, MSNBC had a 77% advantage over CNN in average total viewers. The largest gap in the NBC Universal-owned network's 27-year history, according to Nielsen data. MSNBC has also overtaken CNN and the 25 to 54 age group coveted by advertisers. Melbourne has been a major beneficiary. His program's total audience is up 29% compared with May 2022, with a 47% increase in the 25 to 54 demographic. Melbourne's program drew an average of 1.4 million viewers, ranking behind Fox News but far ahead of CNN. When news broke Thursday that Trump had been indicted by a federal grand jury on charges related to his handling of classified documents, Melbourne appeared across MSC's primetime lineup and all day Friday, breaking down the case in the conversational style he employs on his own program. OJ had the book, If I Did It, Trump's book would be, I did it, Melbourne said during one broadcast. He starts out in a hole that's worse than most defendants. Melbourne's reach goes well beyond cable. His program has accumulated more than $1.27 billion total, total views on YouTube since it launched in 2017, more than any other personalities at the network. Attracting viewers on digital platforms is an ongoing challenge for the traditional TV news business. But Milbar has embraced it, connecting with MSNBC moms, a term described, describing the network's rabid core fans around the world. He recently attended a Spanish guitarist performance in New York. Afterward, the artist approached him. I'm thinking maybe he's into the news, Melbourne 43 said. He goes, my mom in Spain watches you every day. Every morning I wake up and there's a new YouTube video of you from her.
Before joining MSNBC, Melba practiced law as a protege of legendary First Amendment attorney Ab Floyd Abrams. While Melba spent time before then working in Democratic politics, he is no longer a registered member of a political party. He is an opinionated but not partisan advocate, which keeps the beat in a neutral zone between Never Trumper Nicole Wallace's program, Deadline White House, and the lineup of, of liberal commentators that follow him in primetime. The way Ari engages in conversations is refreshing, said Michelle Steele, the former Republican National Committee chairman who has been an embassy regular, uh, regular since 2011. Before you get to the more partisan discussions on the evening shows, he gives you some grounding that you can refer back to and rely on. Melbourne books entertainers and artists as guests for the back, uh, back end of his program, including longer talks on an occasional segment called Mavericks. Some of them have become pals, such as Curb Your Enthusiasm regular Richard Lewis, who coined the name Beatnik uh, for the show's followers. He's fearless when he interviews people who give him problems, Lewis said. He, shares them, he stares them down like a prize fighter in the ring. Melba grew up in Seattle, where he went to Garfield High School, which also turned out musical icons Jimi Hendrix and Quincy Jones. Melba's father was a doctor who emigrated from Israel, and his grandparents fled Nazi Germany. His father and mother, a sociologist, raised him and his older brother to have our curiosity about the world. At the dinner table, we discussed everything under the sun, Melber said. When we went to other places and there was a kid's table, I didn't understand. I was like, I don't want to be demoted. Melber's home was filled with books and vinyl records, which gave him a passion for music. As a teen in the 90s, he became a rabid hip-hop fan during the, general's, the genre's golden age. An advertising poster for St. Ides Special Brew featuring Snoop Dogg and Tupac Shakur, which Melba wrangled out of a Seattle bodega decades ago, is displayed in his Brooklyn apartment. The beat of that era has stayed with Melba as longtime viewers know. He regularly drops rap lyrics to get across uh, points in his reports on law and politics. My view is the music can help connect us, bridge divides, and explain things, whether that's Bob Dylan or Billie Holiday or a lot of hip-hop artists, Melber said. Melber looks for lyrics that offer insights into social justice issues, citing poet and musician Gil Scott Heron's No Knock in a segment about the death of Breonna Taylor, the black medical worker from Louisville, Kentucky, shot by police during a botched raid on her apartment. When you learn that Gil Scott Heron had a song 51 years ago protesting the use of that police tactic only in predominantly black, neighbor, black and brown neighborhoods, I do think it brings something to it, Melbourne said. It's a history lesson. Last year, Melbourne devoted 11 minutes on his program to breaking down Jay-Z's portion of the Grammy-nominated DJ Khalid track, God Did, as a way to examine the social consequences of the country's long-running drug war. Melbourne decoded every reference and included a clip of the 60 Minutes interview Mike Wallace conducted with Louis Farrakhan that Jay-Z quotes in the lyrics. Jay-Z released audio of the Melbourne segment on his YouTube channel and other platforms which left Melbourne honored and blown away. Melbourne has been gently mocked for his hip-hop obsession. Comedian John Oliver on his HBO show Last Week Tonight has run montages of Melbourne quoting lyrics to guests. Wasn't it Drake who said the game is sold separately, who looked back at him bewildered? 
Melbourne is savvy enough to laugh along, replaying Oliver's Ari Melbourne rapper rap genius bids on the beat. Some in the hip-hop community have embraced Melbourne, who gets invites to concerts and even landed a seat at the pre-Grammys brunch held by Jay-Z's management firm Rock Nation. New York's hip-hop radio station Hot 97 sponsored the fifth anniversary party of The Beat held last year at a local gallery space where the late artist Jean-Michel Basquiat Basquiat's exhibition opened. Artists have appeared on the program to introduce new songs and offer perspectives that don't always get heard on mainstream news outlets. Veteran rapper Fat Joe, a Melbourne viewer before he started showing up as a guest, has occasionally been paired up on the beat with conservative commentator Bill Kristol, creating an odd couple that have bonded over their disdain for Trump. I was hoping they would give us a show, Fat Joe said in an interview. Melbourne's hip-hop references may be lost on some of the cable news audience. Half of MSNBC's viewers on its linear channel are over 70. But Fat Joe, a self-proclaimed news freak, can attest that the fans he's played, for, uh, played to for decades too are tuning in. Hip-hop fans are now CEOs of companies and billionaires, Fat Joe said. The kids that grew up with Public Enemy and LL Cool J, they're 50 years old now. They want to know what it's go- what's going on. And they look at Ari and go, this guy understands us. Thatcho added that Melbourne is prone to flexing whenever the beat reaches another ratings milestone. Ari always reminds me every time he's number one, Thatcho said. He sends me a little text. That was He's Got the Flow on MSNBC by Stephen Battaglio. From the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Monday, June 12, 2023. Here is one more entertainment article from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, June 13, 2023, in her happy place. Jenny Lewis finds joy making music in Nashville by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic. It turns out that Jenny Lewis, former child actor, widely respected songwriter, avatar of sophisticated L.A. cool, is a mall walker. I go down there and I get my steps in, she says, shrugging off matter-of-factly. I'm also a, mass- a massage at the mall person. Lewis, whose talent and effortless charm have made her an object of fascination since her days fronting the beloved early 2000s indie rock band Rilo Kylie, pursues these activities at the Opry Mills Shopping Center in Nashville, where the lifelong Angelino bought a second home in 2017. Opry Mills also boasts a mediocre Mexican chain restaurant, per Lewis's description, called Chewy's, which she's heard inspired the song Margarita at the Mall by the Silver Jew's David Berman, a poet and songwriter hero of Lewis's who died in 2019. So, in addition to the mall walking and the massages, she'll sometimes throw her black cockapoo in her Chevy Colorado, the stars of her own song, Puppy and a Truck, and hit Chewy's for an afternoon drink on the patio. You know, she says, in honor of Berman. Finding happiness where perhaps you least expect it That's one of the secrets of life that Lewis, 47, explores on her enchanting new album, Joy All, which puts her sweet, sly voice over funky and laid-back country rock arrangements that split the difference between the musical traditions of her two hometowns. Recorded in Nashville with producer David Cobb, known for his work with Chris Stapleton and Brandi Carlisle, the LP follows a series of personal losses for Lewis, including her mother, 
who died in 2016, 2019, a couple of show business mentors and film music editor Jerry Cohen, an album cover designer Gary Burden, and his social life for much of the year 2020, which he spent isolated at her place in the studio in the studio hills, uh, studio city hills, thanks to a history of serious serious childhood asthma that left her especially vulnerable to COVID. Yet joy all exults in having survived hardships to inherit the wisdom of middle age. My 40s are kicking my ass and handing them handing them to me in a margarita glass. She sings against a shuffling groove in Puppy and a Truck. Later, the jazzy, soulful, the essence of life defines that elusive state as both suffering and ecstasy. Lewis's new album also comes and she embraces her role as kind of a godmother to a younger generation or two of rock artists, many of them women, writing with wit and acuity about the details of their emotional lives. Without Jenny Lewis, there is no Phoebe Bridgers, there's no soccer mommy, there's no boy genius, says Ben Gibbard of Death Cab for Cutie, who's been close with Lewis since he reunited to her, uh, recruited her to sing backup, background vocals on Give Up, the 2003 debut by his electro-pop side project, The Postal Service. Curled in an armchair at her home in Studio City, her little dog, Bobby Rhubarb, tucked next to her, Lewis smiles when asked on a recent afternoon how that hallowed position makes her feel. Stoked, she says, and old. The sound of vintage reggae drifts from a cassette boombox in the kitchen. Out back by the pool are dozens of small tones Lewis hand-painted uh, hand during the pandemic to evoke Salvation Mountain near the Salton Sea. Once you realize you're at the age where not only can, uh, not only can you write a memoir, but you can be a memoir, that's a pretty big moment, says Lewis, who's wearing gold cordu corduroys and a grand royal record sweatshirt, her long red hair beneath a, a beat-up ball cap. I do consider myself a pioneer, but a lot of these women have looked up to my music. They've eclipsed my record sales or my streaming numbers, if you pay attention to that S. Indeed, there's something of an underground legend quality to Lewis, whose many other admirers include Katie Crutchfield, of Waxahachie and the L.A. sister trio Haim, whose uh, Danielle Haim once played guitar in Lewis's live band. The singer who has been thinking lately about things that didn't quite happen in her career to bring real-life pop stardom, like Rilo Kali's buzzy 2004 single Portions of Fox for Foxes, not becoming an actual hit, as she puts it, or the time the band was in running for a coveted performance slot on Saturday Night Live in 2007, only to see the show go dark amid that year's writer's strike. That might have changed the course of history for us, she says of the SNL spot, but I actually wouldn't change anything. Not being an SNL kind of led me to this moment where I'm in control of my art on every level. In a funny twist, the serenely satisfied Joy All, Lewis's fifth solo album, and her first for the venerable Blue Note label, could be one to expand Lewis's audience. On the road in 2021, she played in front of hundreds of thousands of potential new fans as Harry Styles' opening act. The demand for a Rilo Kylie reunion seems to grow louder with every year. Even Lana Del Rey wrote a song about her, or so Lewis is pretty sure, and Blue Bannisters, I'm assuming I'm the Jenny that jumped into a pool, she says of a line from the title track of Del Rey's 2021 LP. 
A friend of mine was staying in the in the back house, Lewis explains, nodding through a set of glass doors, and Lana came to visit. We were hanging out and swimming, and throughout our conversation, she was sort of speaking in, into her voice notes on her phone. Later, she texted me, like, hey, do you mind if I use this in a, in a song? Our conversation had made its way in, into her song, which is very beautiful. Among Lewis's other high-profile pals is Jimmy Buffett, with whose family she's vacationed. The Buffets really know how to do what she says. Even if you're not a beachy person, they make you get in the water every day. Don Wash, the Grammy-winning producer and Blue Note president, says Lewis is pretty blasé about pop stardom. She's not doing stupid as like chasing Justin Bieber. But, he adds, Jenny's a very savvy person. She wants to reach people with her music. Says Gibbard, I've always gotten the sense that a spirit of anti-fame fame is appealing to her. Uh, Lewis was born in Las Vegas, where her parents performed in casinos as a lounge act. Her mom and dad split when she was three, and her mom took her and her older sister to Van Nuys. Lewis spent the 80s working on sets, a Jell-O commercial, a gig on Growing Pains, a role playing Shelley Long's daughter in Troop Beverly Hills. Her memories of those days are shaped by her complicated relationship with her mother, who was addicted to heroin and used Lewis's earnings to buy drugs. This is sort of embarrassing, but I wet the bed until I was eight or nine, Lewis said. She remembers driving to an audition in her mother's uh, copper-covered Honda Accord when she accidentally peed in the front seat. My mom was so mad at me, but I booked the job. Lewis quit acting in her early 20s and formed Rilo Kiley with Blake Sennett, a fellow act child actor. The band, which flexed an encyclopedic knowledge of rock history in tunes about ambition, sex, and depression, spent a decade creeping right up to the big time before drifting apart around 2011. By the time she was 40, Lewis had subtly established herself as a solo act adored by the in-the-know millennials and classic rockers alike. Yet she'd also broken up with her longtime boyfriend, singer-songwriter Johanna Rice, and decided it was time to get out of the valley. So she went to New York, where she lived for two years in a friend Annie Clark's East Village apartment, while Clark performed as St. Vincent, uh, lived in L.A. We freaky Friday, Lewis said. She and a couple of friends formed a scrappy, politically-minded post-punk trio, Nice as F, that, placed, that played shows until late 2016, one of the members was eight months pregnant. And then Trump got elected and the mood just shifted, she said, Lewis says, who recalls election night and Clark's fifth floor wake-up. You could hear the screams of the people in the building. At the time, Lewis was dating someone who lived in Nashville and decided to give the town a try. I'm not immersed in the music business there at all, she says. I can do a little cowgirl cosplay, which is fun. But ultimately, I'm not cut for that kind of cloth. And according to the allergy test I took yesterday, I'm allergic to horses. Even so, she's enjoying educating herself on the history of country music. She's been covering Keith Whitley's Miami, Miami in concert. Often she'll drive out to the cemetery in suburban Hendersonville, where Johnny Cash and June Carter Cash are buried. There's also this guy, Merle Kilgore, who wrote Ring of Fire, she says. His headstone is so flashy, so flashy. Like it's totally upstaging Johnny in June. It's so Nashville. I love it. Some of the songs on Joy All came out of a virtual songwriting camp convened 
by a musician Beck in early 2021, in which he'd give the participants various prompts, such as write a song using only cliches. Lewis's response to that one was Love Feel, with its talk of fire and light, lightning and sugar in the gas tank. Lewis met producer Cobb through her friends in the L.A. duo Lucius, who were in Nashville making their album Second Nature with, with Carlisle. Lewis identifies the 60s country pop star Skeeter Davis as a crucial influence on her new album, though it's easy to hear Lindsey Buckingham in Psychos and Tom Petty in Apples and Oranges. The LP's sound is consi considerably leaner than Lewis's last few albums, which she attributes in part to the fact that she was trying to be COVID-cautious about how many people were in the studio at a given time. Says Cobb, I just love her voice so much that I wanted to make that the thing. To the producer's ears, Lewis's singing has this ability to soothe even when she's writing about something really deep stuff, he adds. I hear real happiness in her voice on this record. For, the, for her previous album, 2019's On the Line, Lewis hired Ryan Adams to produce, a decision she grew to regret when, just weeks before the record dropped, Adams was accused by several women of sexual misconduct. At the time, Adams denied the claims against him. Uh, Lewis said then that Adams didn't abuse her, though today she's still haunted by something he told her in the, in the studio, which was enough of this campaign bulls, she recalls. But the record is a return to the camp, campfire bolst because I want, it, I want to be able to take my guitar and play these songs anywhere by myself. A sense of self-sufficiency is important to Lewis in both her music and her life. In addition to Clark, she let other friends stay in her Studio City place while she was away, including a family with a newborn, which she thinks cleansed the house of whatever energy remained from her years there with rice. Then I had to come back and go through S, she says. It's way sparser now. I got rid of all the pictures on the walls. They were all of Jonathan. She, looked all, she looks around the living room, which is virtually empty beyond a chair, a sofa, and a marimba sitting in the corner. This is my space, and I love it. But I'm really happy that I have the luxury of going back and forth between here and a new place, making new memories elsewhere, somewhere else, having new romantic experiences in a different bed. Lewis will spend much of this year on the road playing festivals, headlining shows, and opening arena days for Beck and Phoenix, including an August 7th stop at the Kia Forum, before joining Gibbard for a tour marking the 20th anniversary of the Postal Service album. That tour will wrap up in October with three nights at the Hollywood Bowl. For her current live band, which includes only women, I want to create an environment that's safe, fun, not too serious, but serious in the work, she says. I want to rehearse and I want to get it right. Learning how to have these talks before you embark on a journey like here are the ground rules, I think that's really positive. Did the experience with Adams make her feel responsible for more closely vetting the people she's worked with? Yes, she replies. I'm in charge of 12 people on tour. They're my responsibility. Whatever behavior was going on in 2004 does not fly now. I mean, I, it didn't fly back then and I was uncomfortable with a lot of stuff. Hooking up with, with random fans in the bunks? That sucks. I hate that. Lewis doesn't want to get into the specifics of what was, uh, what was uh, doing, what, of who was doing what in 2004. But it's clear she's talking about some of the personality conflicts that eventually drove apart Rilo Kiley. 
Yet these days, she seems more open to that longed-for reunion than she ever has. Playing those songs together would be really fun, she says. Giving people the satisfaction of hearing songs that were a part of their formative high school experiences, that's a very special thing to provide. It's certainly something that's in our consciousness, and I think if the time is right in our relationships, then the music will be. So Coachella 2025? I feel like that's, she says, trailing off with a laugh. I don't think 2024. For now, she's willing to keep disappointing people with that, with, by withholding what they want. They're always like, when we miss how you were then, she says. One wonders if encountering that attitude makes her want to dig in her heels regarding Rilo Kylie. Of course, Lewis says, we're never, ever, ever getting bent together, to quote Taylor Swift, but that's not true. I'm not a person who closes the door. That's In Her Happy Place by Mikhail Wood, pop music critic, from the calendar section of the Los Angeles Times, Tuesday, June 13, 20. 23. All right, now let's read some articles from the Jewish Journal for June 16th through the 22nd, 2023. We start with the editor's notes section. What should AJ do? What should AJU do with its campus? By David Suisa. Nine months ago, as it aimed to sell its 22-acre Bel Air campus, American Jewish University had a chance, had a choice. It could sell it to the International Education. International Education Company, Educate First, or it could sell to Milken Community Schools, which already had a high school in the area and was looking to expand. AJU went with EF, which they evidently deemed made a stronger offer. This triggered some hard feelings among members of the community who were hoping that the venerable campus, which includes a community at Mikvah, a Jewish library, and multiple spaces honoring local donors, would stay in Jewish hands. As I wrote at the time, there are the, uh, these are the most difficult columns to write because I'm torn between two sentiments. On the one hand, I don't want to feel communal anger, but on the other, I don't want to dismiss it either. My dilemma was that it was a fait, uh, that it was a fait accompli. Feeding any communal anger about the sale uh, would be like crying over split milk on the eve of the high holy days. Had the sale to Milken gone through, I wrote this column would have turned from the hardest one to write to the easiest. Everyone loves a happy ending. So when the dramatic news came <clears throat> came out last week that the EF sale fell through, many saw it as a unique opportunity for the community to have the, that happy ending. Will it happen? Right now things are up in the air. A lot has changed in nine months. I heard that interest from Milken has cooled and that the real estate market has softened. If a deal with Milken is not revived, can AJU find a Jewish suitor at a mutually acceptable price? And if it can, then what? For starters, it would mean AJU going back to square one with the chance to turn a temporary setback into a community victory. In the wake of the COVID lockdowns and the many uh, conveniences that ke uh, keep us cozy at home, Jews have never been more physically isolated. As I wrote last week, what we need now are physical spaces where we can gather in person. AJU can look at its Mulholland campus not as a giant burden, but as a communal garden. What kind of creative, engaging spaces and events can it create that will get the Jews of LA to come together and reconnect? In its mission statement, 
AJU says it advances and elevates the Jewish journey of individuals, organizations, and our community through excellence in scholarship, teaching, engaged conversation, and outreach. That last word, outreach, is a crucial one. AJU now has an opportunity to reach out <clears throat> to the community and help heal some wounds. Over many decades, as AJU evolved into a bustling hub of communal activities, people throughout our community developed a deep emotional attachment to the place. They don't see this as just business. Either through selling or partnering, or a combination of both, if AJU can take the lead to reimagine the campus to better serve the community, it will not just heal wounds, but benefit all of us. I don't pretend to know all the issues AJU is now working through. I'm sure there are plenty. I'm speaking solely as someone who represents the interest of a community which I love. Several ideas uh, are floating around. Beyond renewing the sale to Milken, a few readers brought up the idea of a JCC to serve both LA and the Valley. Other readers brought up the need for more senior housing. Rabbi Laura Geller shared a, twi a twist on that idea. If the campus can be rebuilt as housing, it should be intergenerational. Some version of a continuing care community with pods for millennials with lower rents and smaller units for families with younger kids in exchange for interaction with the older adults. We can expect more ideas to percolate in the next few weeks and months. A key factor for any suitor would be to work closely with the neighborhood groups to get their support. The good news is that the community has been given a second chance, and so was AJU. As I wrote last week, LA Jewelry is now in the process of a communal conversation over the future of a magnificent space in which every member of our community has a stake. We should support AJU's efforts to help move this forward. If we can come out of this difficult episode with the realization that our communal spaces belong to all of us, that would be a happy ending indeed. That was What Should AJU Do With Its Campus by David Suisa from the Editor's Notes section. And now we go to the Columnist section. This one is called For Father's Day, I'm Interviewing My Iranian Father. By Tabby Raphael. If I had a nickel for every time readers said they enjoyed various mentions of my mother in my weekly column, I would have several dollars. If you do the math, that's a lot of praise for my mother, all deserved. But I haven't devoted equal column space to my father, perhaps because he's often outshined by my mother. Yet more than anyone else, my father has shaped my life and made me who I am. I still remember sleeping on his chest as he lay on the couch back in our house in Tehran, and listened to his beloved Kol Israel, Voice of Israel, Persian-language radio broadcasts. I'll never forget huddling at my father's arms as he held the transistor radio that warned of imminent Iraqi air raids in our neighborhood during the Iran-Iraq War. Or dozing off on his chest again at our apartment in Los Angeles, calmly waiting for Shabbat dinner to start as the TGIF weekly television lineup filled our living room with English-language dialogue. Come to think of it, something was always playing in the background in my mother and father's home. It's time to implement an interview with my Iranian mother, which I wrote in January 2022, with an interview with my Iranian father, who requested that I only use his nickname, Heshi. Like nearly every Iranian father in exile, my dad believes that the regime is tracking his every move. 
I should note that his concern about Iranian surveillance isn't easily dismissible paranoia. In recent years, the FBI has repeatedly arrested individuals on charges of spying on behalf of Iran and conducting surveillance of Jewish communities. But back to an interview with my father, who, moving forward, will be referred to as F.H. Father Heshi. Think of him as a loving, dark-skinned teddy bear who always knows uh, to pick the best pineapples and who saved my life and those of future generations through his intelligence, resilience, and sacrifice. The following interview was conducted in Persian. Tabby, hi Baba, Father, hi Juju, baby bird in Persian. Tabby, I'm calling to interview you. Father, I need more time. I want to be well prepared for our interview. Tabby, that's very sweet. Are you sure now isn't a good time? Father, all right, if you really want to know, I have to uh, take your mother to the doctor, then to the market, then to Smart and Final. Tebby, but Smart and Final is a supermarket. Father, I know, but she only likes the cottage cheese at Pavilions. Tabby, God bless you, Dad. I'll call you back. A few hours later, my father arrived at my home with a small notebook in which he had written everything about his life that he wanted to discuss during our interview. Tabby, hi, Baba. Father, hi, Juju. Tabby, what are some of your... What are some of the thoughts you wrote in your notebook? Father, just important events about my life, in a nutshell. I've always wanted the best for people. See here? I wrote about my first job. Tebby, tell me about that. Father, I was 15. I worked in Tehran at a Tehran barbershop. Then I worked for a company that distributed medicine wholesale. Concurrently, I took night classes. A client was so impressed by how fast I used an abacus that he offered me a job. He asked me how much I wanted to be paid. Tabby, an abacus? What did you say? Father, I was so plucky, I said I wanted three times more than I was making. And he said, you're hired. Tabby, did you learn any important lessons from those early jobs before you became a chemist? Father, I realized I could make myself proud. At my new job, I met highly educated people for the first time. Why can't I be like them, I asked myself. So I applied to college in America. When I returned to Iran before the revolution, I helped my parents buy a house. It cost 25,000 toman. Tabby, how did it feel to be able to give back to your parents? Father, I loved taking care of them. I took them to the doctor. There used to be a restaurant called Kola Ferengi in Tehran. I used to take them there a lot. Tabby, how did Grandma and Grandpa respond to your news about you going, about going to America for college? Father, at the time, I was only the only one of the whole family to pursue higher education, and that was a big deal. But I'll never forget what I, when I was leaving. A song played on the radio that went something like, Oh, caravan, remember to go slower, because you're taking away the comfort of my soul. My father turned to me and told me, So you're really going? I said yes. She sighed and responded, You're leaving me for the States and taking the comfort of my soul. I said, Mom, I understand but I have to make a life for myself. In hindsight, I wish I'd been more sensitive. Tabby, that was the first time you told Grandma you were going to America, but that time you came back. The second time occurred when you decided to escape Iran with Mom, my sister, and me. What was Grandma's reaction the second time? Father, the second time she understood that we needed to leave, but she also understood that in their old age, she and your grandfather had to stay. My poor mother. Years later, one of our relatives visited her in Tehran, then came to the U.S. and told me, I saw your mother. You should visit her again. 
I told her I told her relative there was no way I could, I could return. Then he told me that my mother had said, "Just tell her, Heshi, I want to see his face one more time. Then I can go." Pass away. At that point, my seemingly unbreakable father teared up, and I fell into his arms as I sobbed and contemplated everything we lost and the loved ones who we never saw again. Tibby, what are your feelings toward America, Dad? Father, I love America. I got my wish to study here. The first time I came for college in the mid-seventies, I heard a rabbi speaking on a radio program. I was bewildered. Tebby, what did that tell you about America? Father, it meant that there was freedom of expression here. It also meant that Jews could live comfortably. I had never heard a rabbi talk on Iranian radio. Tebby, do you still consider Iran your home then? Father, I'd love to go back to where we lived in the mountains of Tehran, where where I used to take my dad and make chicken kebab over a portable grill. I derived so much joy from his enjoyment. Tebby, what does Israel mean to you? Father, nothing, nothing. There are spies all over here. Don't ask me about Israel. Tebby, what do you、uh, what do you wake up for in the morning? Father, my family. And maybe for exercise, studying, and communication with people. I like people. You can always learn from them. Tebby, why do Persian dads consume so much news、uh, related to the Middle East and speak about nothing but the news when they see each other at dinner parties? Father, I'd love to see peace in the world, especially in the Middle East. I'm so excited about the Abraham Accords. That was the most intelligent thing I've seen in years to bring peace and understanding and to get rid of negative stereotypes. Tebby, what's the key to being a good father? Father, to be respectful and understanding. My father was so kind. He was quiet but sensitive. Tebby, you're not quiet. Father, I study anything and everyone—science, technology, inventions, philosophy, and people. Tebby, Dad, do you have a best friend? Father, well, yes. You and your sister, my daughters. Happy Father's Day to dads everywhere. That was for Father's Day. I'm interviewing my Iranian father by Tebby Raphael from the columnist section. Tebby Raphael is an award-winning writer, speaker, and civic action activist. Follow her on Twitter and Instagram at Tebby Raphael. Right, and also from the columnist section, Trump indictment just a warm-up by Dan Schnur. Every savvy promoter knows that building anticipation with preliminaries. Is a smart way to increase the interest of the audience leading up to the main event. That's why theaters show more show movie previews before the feature film, and why concert bookers have a lesser known band play before the headliner. It's the reason that JV teams play before、uh, before the varsity takes the field. Special Counsel Jack Smith is not a showman by any stretch of the imagination, but he understands the strategy of building a crowd. As historic and as tumultuous as and as earth-shaking as the 37-count indictment he filed against former President Trump last week will be for all of us, it actually is just the prelude for an even more cataclysmic legal and political battle that will soon follow. There is no precedent in American history for even a single federal indictment to be leveled against either a former president or a presidential frontrunner. Let alone more than three dozen, and it is so impossible to predict the tests of our country will face in as the case against Trump progresses. It's clear from the first analyses of the allegations against Trump 
that extraordinarily sensitive national security intelligence may have been compromised. But given the historic nature of these charges, little attention is being made to the other investigation that Smith is leading, which is also likely to result in additional criminal charges against the former president. And legal action against Trump for his role in the January 6th Capitol riots is likely to be even more explosive. The confidential documents that Trump took with him from the White House are undoubtedly of significant military and diplomatic import. But even though their potential impact on the nation's safety is, is tremendous, that possible danger has not yet been realized, at least to our knowledge. So the impact is still theoretical and therefore less tangible for most of us. The violence of January 6th has left a more visceral imprint on the country's psyche, and although many of Trump's most loyal supporters now dismiss the import of the events of that day, most of the American public does understand the nature of the threat that was posed to our government by those who stormed the Capitol. The feelings on both sides of this fight are much deeper and rawer. Trump's critic critics see January 6th as a fundamental assault on our democracy and the attack as an act of sedition against the United States. His defenders echo his claims that those who came to the Capitol on his behalf were mostly unarmed patriotic Americans protesting an unfair decision against their candidate. But by the time Congress voted to ratify Joe Biden's election long after midnight, the violence and destruction had left a permanent stain on our national psyche. By contrast, this current, uh, this current battle is about paper. Important and top secret paper to be sure, but paper nonetheless. The potential damage that could occur that could occur should any of the, the confidential information stored at Mar-a-Lago have fallen into the wrong hands is catastrophic. But at this moment, the consequences of Trump's recklessness with those documents are with those documents are still unknown. On the other hand, the harm done by the mob that invaded the Capitol is something that most Americans have seen and felt for have seen and felt. For most of us, those scars have never fully healed and a prolonged public clash over Trump's culpability for the events of that day will reopen those wounds. Because emotions run much more deeply over the January 6th assault, those legal charges will lead to an even more uh, divisive political brawl than the one that has just gotten underway. As hard as it might be to believe, the current fight is merely the undercard for the even more bruising one to follow. It's impossible to predict when Smith might move on this, on this second front, but in the not-too-distant future, we're likely to see indictments regarding January 6th that will open an even uglier chapter in this already wrenching saga. We moved beyond any plausible precedent some time ago. This is uncharted political and societal territory. That was Trump Indictment Just a Warm-Up by Dan Schnur from the Columnist section. Dan Schnur is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, USC, and Pepperdine. Join Dan for his weekly webinar, Politics in the Time of Coronavirus, www.lawac.org, on Tuesdays at 5 p.m. And also from the columnist section, we have this one, Encourage Your Children to Follow Their Dreams by Kylie Aura Lobel. When I was a child, I had a hard time expressing myself. I was introverted and shy and afraid of what people would think of me if I spoke up. I thought they would judge me harshly if I revealed too much of myself. So I turned to writing whenever I needed to say what was on my mind. I'd write notes to my parents telling them what made me excited or happy or scared. 
I remember one time I did something mean, uh, mean to my dog and I wrote him a note to tell him I was sorry. I started keeping a diary to write about my friends or how I obsessed I was with Britney Spears. In the fifth grade, I joined our school newspaper, Cougar Tracks. I wrote my stories about what was going on in school. My dad was excited to see my articles every week, telling me, You're a good writer. Keep going. He'd buy me the Stone Soup magazine, a children's literary journal, and encourage me to submit my work. I joined my school newspaper in middle and high school, and my parents would make sure I got rides home from school after our newspaper meetings. When it was time for me to uh, go to college and I wanted to major in journalism, they were all for it and never once tried to uh, uh, get me to change my major or take a different path. They were excited when I got prestigious journalism internships and always supported me so I could follow my dreams. Today, I'm working in the field I majored in and I owe so much to that of my parents. Early on, they saw what, uh, what I was interested in and what I was good at, writing and they made me feel comf confident enough to pursue it. There was never any talk of, writers don't make much money, or why don't you go into something more practical? Instead, they helped me on my journey to become a professional writer. Every single day, I'm grateful and amazed that I'm able to pay my bills doing what I love. I, ha I never have the Sunday scaries. So I actually look forward to Mondays. At different times of my life, I had to take on 9 to 5 jobs, I didn't like in I didn't like in order to get by, so I know so I know what it's like to feel trapped. The contrast makes me extremely appreciative that I don't have to live that way anymore. Now that I'm a parent, I'm going to encourage my daughters to follow their dreams as well, even if they don't end up pursuing their passions in the long run. At the very least, I'm showing them that I support them. Building that kind of confidence up in children gives them the self assurance they need to thrive when they go out into the real world. They know that they are special and can accomplish anything if they work hard and stick to their convictions. There is a special, there is a lot of pressure on people to live a specific way, get a certain type of job, make a certain amount of money, and stick to what other people around you are doing. The world tries to stop us from following our heart in so many ways, and many times it succeeds. If we don't believe in ourselves, we crumble under the pressure to fit in. And then we're unhappy because we aren't fulfilling our God-given purpose. That unhappiness can manifest in a number of ways and sadly may ultimately destroy a person. But as parents, we can change the narrative. We can take interest in our children's passions. We can instill confidence in our children and be the, bi uh, the biggest cheerleaders. We can show them that we'll always be there for them. One day, I hope that my daughters will get to do what they love too. And I hope that they know I'll always have their back. I'll always be on the sidelines rooting for them no matter what. Want to talk about my column? Email me, kylieo at jewishjournal.com. That was Encourage Your Children to Follow Their Dreams by Kylie Ora Lobel from the columnist section. Kylie Ora Lobel is a community editor of the Jewish Journal. All right, and also from the columnist section, this is called Keeping Humble by Morton Shapiro. If I asked you to describe your idea, idea of a typical college president, I doubt that the word humility would be among the first adjectives that come to mind. But let me tell you a story. On the day the phone rang in the president's office, and it was a reporter from the school newspaper, it, she said that the community wanted to know more about the president, specifically what the president did during his leisure time. 
The president was intrigued by this idea and invited her to come by his office the following Sunday afternoon. It turns out that this president was an avid fisherman and he kept a rowboat at a lake 45 minutes from campus. Sunday arrived and the two of them drove to the lake, went out on the boat, and the reporter observed as the president cast his line, which immediately caught on some floating debris. The reporter rolled her eyes, thinking, some fisherman, until the president handed her the fishing rod, stepped out of the boat, walked on top of the water, disentangled the line, walked back to the top of the water, on top of the water, and climbed into the boat. The rest of the afternoon was uneventful. The story about their little fishing trip was due to appear in the school, new, the school paper the next morning, and the president excitedly went out to the lobby of his office as soon as the paper arrived. There it was, a three-word headline in bold, large print, President Can't Swim. In other words, a presidency, as is the case with many other high-profile jobs, can be much more humbling than you might imagine. Nonetheless, in any leadership position, it is always helpful to have friends and family who keep you grounded, reminding, reminding you not to succumb to the fanfare and to instead constantly work toward personal and professional improvement. And for me, religious observance can be the most humbling of all. People of deep faith discover so much joy at houses of worship. Friendship, insp inspiration, and serenity are just three of the things that congregants embrace. But what I love more than anything else is the sense of humility I find each Shabbat. I look around at the other regulars and I am, in, I am awestruck with how they are able to pray so much better than I can. I, I listen to the clergy and lay leaders provide a Divar Torah that analyzes the weekly Parsha and offers a deeper insight than I could have ever attained on my own. And despite my ongoing language studies, I struggle each week to translate the text with my disappointingly rudimentary Hebrew. But at the same time, I almost always leave synagogues with enhanced confidence in myself and in humanity. I feel empowered to try to do something that might help repair our broken world, but does a boost in confidence necessarily come at the expense of humility? I think not. Believing in oneself doesn't mean you have to be self-important. To the contrary. It can instill in us the responsibility to serve. One of the most memorable lines I ever heard from a commencement speaker came at Williams College in 2006 from the choreographer and teacher of African dance, Chuck Davis. In a magnificent commentary about arrogance and service, he said that the only time it is acceptable to look down on someone is when you're reaching out your hands to lift that person up. The writer and theologian C.S. Lewis said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it is, thinking, it is thinking of yourself less. I love those words. We should go through life confident about our talents, but never believe that the world revolves around us. Judaism provides an exquisite roadmap to fulfillment. It teaches us to take pride in our abilities without being arrogant. It challenges us to give back to the community, but not out of a sense of superiority. It reminds us to be thankful for the joys in our lives, rather than take them for granted. May we all approach life with humility, with a deep, deeply ingrained desire to serve, and with an abiding gratitude. That was Keeping Humble by Morton Shapiro from the Columnist section. Morton Shapiro is the former president of Williams College and Northwestern University. His most recent book with Gary Saul Morsom is Minds, with Minds Wide Shul, 
how the new fundamentalisms divide us. And again, from the columnist section, this is called Father's Day, I Love My Tie by Mark Schiff. God opens with the phrase, be fruitful and multiply. However, Adam may have thought he heard eat fruit and multiply and accustomed dearly. It is a commandment from God for fathers and mothers to have children and spend time uh, teaching them valuable values by setting an example of exemplary behavior. If not you, then who? The core of Abraham Joshua Heschel's book, The Sabbath, is that the divine can never be found in space, but only in time. Time is our most precious commodity, and as you know, it's limited. But if you want to enjoy your Father's Day time, it's important to use a big chunk of your allotted time with your kids. I didn't always want to go everywhere, but who gives a hoot about what I wanted? You know who? Nobody. When one of my children asked me to take them somewhere, if I could say yes, but instead said no, it would be like turning them down for a raise. Spending time with them is my God-given currency. Spend it all while you were here. What's more pitiful than a grown man whining about not wanting to go to Disneyland because of the long lines? Yes, I did that. It's painful when your child says, why don't you want to go with us, and you have no good answer. A rabbi once said to me, spend time with them now, or they will make you spend time with them later on. He was talking about a potentially the potentiality of sitting in the courtroom. I saw firsthand what happened to kids with dads that didn't care. When I lived in Manhattan, I would occasionally go to the main courthouse at 100 Center Street and sit and watch cases. I found it riveting, as every possible human emotion is playing out before your eyes. It's impossible not to see fractured families in marble hallways crying for their crying their eyes out as their children or one or both parents are being led away to serve time. Yes, it's called serving time. We master we master time, or it masters us. I know many people whose dads were physically there, but emotionally vacant. When my kids were little, and I had to go on the road to work, when they saw me heading out, they, they locked their arms around my ankles, chain gang style, begging me to stay. They were saying, don't go. Spend time with us. Spending time with them doesn't guarantee anything, but it certainly can hurt. Not everyone wants children, but if you decide to have them, and you are blessed at and do have them, you just hit Powerball. To cash the ticket, you need to spend time with them. Having children is the gift that keeps on giving. Ask anyone who earns very little money and struggles to pay their bills, uh, and struggles to pay their bills if they would sell you one of their kids for a few million or billion dollars. Then watch them laugh. If your kids are still living at home and are over 28, you may have spent too much time with them. But if you have little ones, when they're sleeping, peek in on them. Stare at them for a good three minutes. If they've moved out, grab a photo and stare at that. If that doesn't fill you with gratitude, I'm not sure anything ever will. In a world where most things are overrated, including chocolate cake, the one thing that never thins out and perpetually catches you off guard and keeps you on your tippy toes is spending time with your children. It's always something new. I recently chatted with the co-host of my podcast, Lowell Benjamin, about fatherhood. And we both agreed that when we look back on the time we spent with our kids, never for a second did we wish we had done something else. If your kids are anything like mine, 
They're perfectly designed to bring you both the greatest happiness and to shrink your testes from worry. We all want more time. Make sure you use yours wisely. Happy Father's Day. Enjoy your tie. That was Father's Day, Love My Tie by Mark Schiff from the columnist section. Mark Schiff is a comedian, actor, and writer, and a host of the Do You Know Schiff podcast. His new book is Why Not? Lessons on Comedy, Courage, and Chutzpah. All right, now we move on to the My Turn section. This is called Salute to Israel Parade Renews Hope for American Jews and Israel by Yuri Dromi. I first met Ted Comet some 40 years ago when he created and headed the Young Leadership Division at the Council of Jewish Federations, and I was a member of the Israeli Forum. Both in our mid-careers, we forged a personal relationship that grew to become an ongoing collaboration which strengthens the bonds between American and Israeli Jews. Ted told me how in the early 1960s, he had helped organize the first rallies for Soviet Jewry. In 1965, that experience helped him to organize, together with Haim Zohar, Charles Big, Dr. Alvin Schiff, and Dr. Dan Ronan, the first Salute to Israel parade in Manhattan. We had to do something to make Israel more visible, Comet recalled. It took us 2,000 years to bring about the establishment of a Jewish state. It's a miracle that deserves to be celebrated. When he and his wife Shoshana got home that evening, she told him the whole thing was like having a baby. Difficult, incredibly gratifying, and destined for a future that's impossible to predict. Indeed, it was impossible to predict that just two years later, Israel would be facing mortal danger. As they had in 1948, large Arab armies were threatening to invade Israel and to destroy it. Jews were worried that Israel might go under, Comet said, and the notion of a second holocaust was horrifying. So I converted the parade into a demonstration of solidarity. That eve the event, which was held on the Sunday preceding the Six-Day War, drew an astounding quarter of a million marchers. Every year, the Salute to Israel Parade coordinators choose a specific theme that expresses the American-Jewish connection to Israel. The Jewish Community Relations Council of New York, organizers of the parade since 2011, announced that this year's parade will be a unique event expanded to celebrate the 75th anniversary of Israel's founding. The theme was Israel at 75, Renewing the Hope. Renewing the hope is a catchy, elusive phrase. It can mean anything to anyone. Renewing what hope exactly? In an open letter, a group leading, of leading New York rabbis explain the hope that Israel will find lasting peace, the hope for the health and happiness of our brothers and sisters, and the hope that our differences will ultimately bring us closer. What can, who can say no to any of that? A more daring and pointed theme, which for obvious reasons the organizers didn't adopt, would have been the hope that Israel remains a Jewish and democratic state. Because just a few days after the 1967 parade, the glorious victory of the Six-Day War saved Israel from the military threat, but at the same time paved the way to the dire situation we are bogged in today. Between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea, there are the same number of Jews and Arabs. If Israel doesn't separate from the West Bank Palestinians, it either loses its Jewish nature or ceases to be a democracy. One would expect that American Jews, who are worried about the future of Israel, would voice their concern in the parade. The Abraham Accords, however, gave rise to the illusion that Israel will find lasting peace as the rabbis hope, despite ignoring the Palestinian problem. 
American Jews, no wonder, probably reasoned that if the Israelis didn't care, why should they bother? But recently, there has been a direct onslaught on Israel again. But unlike 1967, this time the threat is not from the outside, but from within. Benjamin Netanyahu's government has launched what it calls a judicial reform, which in truth is a constitutional coup whose aim is to make the executive branch omnipotent and weaken the Knesset and the Supreme Court. Israelis have been protesting vehemently for months against this dangerous scheme, and it was refreshing to see many American Jews dismissing the old nonsense of not airing our laundry in front of the Goyim, protesting on the sidewalks of Fifth Avenue, standing in solidarity with their Israeli brothers and sisters. I would truly prefer a parade that attracts American Jews and Israeli expats to march down Fifth Avenue under a slogan of, say, Divided We Stand for Israel, rather than having just the fans of a of current Israeli government showing up while others stay at home because they can't stand the policies of the same government. This year's parade, then, was a great success. It truly renewed the hope that relations between American Jews and Israel would take a more nuanced, genuine form. I'm sure that the 99-year-old Ted Comet, the honorary Grand Marshal of this year's parade, would agree. That was Salute to Israel Parade Renews Hope for American Jews and Israel by Yuri Dromi. From the My Turn section, Yuri Dromi is the former spokesman of the Rabin and Perez governments from 1992 to 96. Okay, let's conclude with this section, Rebbe's Teachings, Shelach Scouting the Land. The fourth section of the Book of Numbers recounts how God told Moses to send Shalach in Hebrew scouts to spy out the land of Israel in preparation for the Jewish people's conquest of it. Parashat Shalach opens with the people ready to enter the land of Israel. As the final preparations before embarking on the conquest, the Israelites send their most distinguished leaders to scout out the land. But as a result of this mission, the people suffered their most serious setback causing their whole generation to die in the desert, delaying entry into the Promised Land for another 39 years. The bulk of this parsha is devo devoted to the details of this dramatic and tragic story. There are many explanations why the scouts failed in this mission, some of which we will see are an exposition of the narrative. But the underlying thrust of their tragic mistake was that they thought the Israelites were not capable of fulfilling their mission, that God somehow overestimated the abilities of his agents or underestimated the difficulties they would face. The generation of Exodus attained the highest level of divine consciousness of any generation in history. God sustained them with the heavenly mana, which taught them daily lessons of his constant involvement in even the mundane facts of life. This made them the ideal recipients for the Torah. Melahita Beshalach, 16.4 they had witnessed God's absolute control over the immutable laws of nature and his ability to suspend them for his people. And finally, they had witnessed the divine revelation of the giving of the Torah at Mount Sinai. How then could such people exposed daily to God's miracles suddenly turn into frightened skeptics? And how could their spiritual elite fall so low as to question God's omnipotence? The answer is that it was precisely their, their misconception that had to be proven wrong once and for all before the entry into the land. It is very easy when we consider the wide range of the Torah's demands on our life and the effort we have to expend uh, to fulfill them properly. 
to fall into the trap of thinking that God is asking too much for uh, uh, too much of us. After all, the Torah seeks to govern every aspect of our life in all its myriad details. Even learning the Torah per se seems impossible, for its measure is longer than the earth and it is wider than the sea. Job 11:9. And on top of this, the Torah requires us to vanquish our inborn animal instincts and resist the pervasive pull of society and its norms. How can the faint voice of the few that are the faith that are faithful to God be heard over the din of those who ignore him? Strong arguments to be sure, but upon every momentary reflection they crumble. For even a human dispatcher, if he had any sense, would not will not give an emissary a charge to, too difficult for him to accomplish. And while a human dispatcher can err in the estimation of an emissary's capabilities, God knows us better than we know ourselves as our Creator. He, as our Creator, He is fully aware of both our strengths and weaknesses. It is therefore inconceivable that He could or would assign us a task that we cannot fulfill. Thus, by failing in the mission, the spies ironically succeeded in imparting this critical lesson to the people. Secondly, the very fact that the spies, as Jewish leaders, walked through the land prepared, prepared it spiritually for the eventual entrance of the people as a whole. The spies' mission, thus, had the immediate effect of beginning the conquest of the land and paving the way for the actual conquest. Had the spies and their generation not sinned, the people would have indeed entered the land headed by Moses and would have been led to a miraculous victory by God's cloud of glory and pillar of fire. But then, the victory and the conquest would have been God's alone, rather than the people's. Because of the spies' sin, the land had now to be won by military prowess. But the victory would be the result of the people's efforts. And because they would fight for it, they would value it more than they would have had they received it only as God's gift. Thus, in this light, it was crucial that the spies should sin. It was, only, it was the only way the objective of making the world into God's home could be accomplished, the only way the historical process could proceed in exactly the best manner possible. Their real fault was not in what they did, but in the fact that they focused on only one side of the coin. Thus, the lesson we must learn from the spies is to aspire to the spiritual life while humbly submitting to God's desire to make this world into his home. When we undertake the quest to manifest our divine dimension as God's mandate rather than an exercise in furthering our self-interest, our mission is guaranteed to success. That was Rebbe's teachings, Shelach Scouting the Land, from the teachings of the Lubavitcher Rebbe, Rabbi Menachem M. Schneerson. The Rebbe's inspirational teachings on the Torah portion can be found in the Kihot Humash, produced by the Chabad House Publications, sponsored by Chabad, Chabad of California, Loving memory, memory of Rabbi Semak Yehoshua Kunin, emissary of the Rabbi and of the Rebbe and director of Chabad of Century City. So, folks, we're just about to come to the end. So, let us close with one ad. Los Angeles Health is energi- Jewish Health is energizing senior life. The evolution of our name from the Los Angeles Jewish Home to Los Angeles Jewish Health reflects the full spectrum of our comprehensive award-winning programs and services. Los Angeles Jewish Health has grown from a group of caring neighbors providing shelter to a leading nonprofit senior care organization.
Our mission remains the same, to deliver excellence in senior care for all, rooted in Jewish values. With more than 100 years of trusted care, we meet you where you are in life to provide a customized experience that's right for you. Independent living, assisted living, senior behavioral health, short-term rehabilitation, skilled nursing, PACE, hospice and palliative care, nursing school, geriatric health, and memory care. LAJ Health, Los Angeles Jewish Health. One call does it all. 855-227-3745. Website, www.lajhealth.org. Folks, that'll do it for this edition of Stan Dunn's Jewish Edition. And so, until next time, everybody, this is your reader and host, Mark Braun. Shalom and peace.